So a girl walks out of a bar. The punchline is different for everyone. Everyone in recovery, for sure. Let's find out how a high-powered corporate finance lawyer in New York City used alcohol to escape from insecurity and a stressful workload. Let's break the stigma of alcoholism and who drunks really might be. Would you believe her? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Secrets of a Sober Mom. Today, I am speaking with Lisa Smith. She is a writer and an attorney. She is the author of Girl Walks Out of a Bar, an award-winning memoir of high-functioning addiction and recovery in the world of New York City corporate law. Lisa is is passionate about breaking the stigma of addiction and mental health issues, particularly for professional women. She is also the co-host of the Recovery Rocks podcast. Welcome, Lisa. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Leslie. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Oh, um, you know, I know it's... Um, it's such a crazy time for everyone, but um, fortunately, everyone seems to be available. <laughs> yeah, that's have true. time to chat, and you know, it's actually you know you know welcoming, you know welcoming conversation on the podcast. So I've been really, really lucky to get some great guests, and um, I'm just so grateful that you that you agreed to do this. And I know that you are busy, 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 busy. You have, (laughs) you have a lot. Um, lot Yeah, but there's always time, you know, for this conversation. These are the important things. Right. Um, I want to talk about your book, but I'm going to put that aside for, for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I guess maybe, we could talk about something that we discussed um, off air that we both feel passionately about, and that's destigmatizing alcoholism. Right, right. Yeah, I uh, I feel very strongly about that, and um, for me, it's quite personal. Um, I was a lawyer in a big law firm, and then I switched over to the administrative side of practicing. I got into business development. And um, over a long period of time, I slid into uh, a a bad downward spiral of uh, drinking and ultimately uh, cocaine at the end to try and counterbalance my drinking so nobody knew what was going on. Um, During that whole spiral downward, there was this uh, sort of parallel spiral along with it that was just shame and fear. And I was terrified somebody would find out. I couldn't imagine, you know, what would people think of me? What, what would my, my law firm certainly couldn't know. And, you know, I, I feared the stigma of addiction. And I think like a lot of us, uh, it is something that, you know, for me, kept me from reaching out for help or even being willing to admit I had a problem because, oh my gosh, what would that mean in terms of, society, right? In terms of the rest of my life. Exactly. Nailed it. Nailed it. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. That is one of, it's probably in the first five sentences of my very first podcast, which is just my story. And I explain that 
you know, the fear of the judgment and the shame and the guilt and the stigma is what really kept me for, um, from, you know, from getting help for, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, when you, when that happens, there's total truth in saying that stigma kills because, you know, that, well, it's really, you know, it really is true. And, um, you know, we have to understand a lot of, you know, what I, the way I think about it in a lot of ways, you know, I had a genetic predisposition, um, to alcoholism and my grandfather on my mom's side died of it. And, you know, I had for so many years and through that whole downward spiral, I had, um, an underlying undiagnosed, untreated, uh, mental health disorder, which was, I was diagnosed when I, uh, finally went to detox. I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and anxiety. And, you know, I now know that, uh, you know, when I, when I got that diagnosis, I was able to understand that my drinking was quite a bit of self-medicating those brain issues. And, you know, there is, so when we talk about, you know, breaking the stigma of substance abuse, it's also breaking the stigma of mental health disorders because so you know so that's so the two go so hand in hand, hand in hand yeah and friend. yeah and we have to understand that you know if i had the way the way I, I frequently put it is that you know if i had diabetes i would go to a doctor who specialized in that area i would take medicine that that doctor prescribed as prescribed and i would make the lifestyle changes that that doctor told me I needed to make. So diet, exercise, all of those things. Well, I have a mental health disorder. I have major depressive disorder and I have anxiety. That is a a disorder of the brain, the same way that say, you know, heart disease or cardiac disease is a disease of the heart. So I go, you know, to deal with my brain disorder, I go to a doctor, a psychiatrist who specializes in that. I take medication as prescribed that that doctor prescribes and I make the lifestyle changes that that doctor you know, tells me to make, I, again, eat well, try to exercise, try to sleep and I don't drink. And I, you know, enter into a program of recovery and with all those things, hope to address the underlying mental health disorder that can help me, you know, so that I can address the, uh, the alcohol as well. I, I, I make the same exact comparison. I use, you know, it could be any, it could be any illness. I, you know, I always say cancer, you know, why yeah. is, it, oh, yeah. Why yeah, is yeah. it viewed any differently than someone who has cancer and needs, you know, chemotherapy? You know, they don't same thing. You know, they don't choose to be ill. And right. you know, despite what many people think who are misinformed, you know, many believe that alcoholics, addicts, you know, they choose this life. They choose to keep using, they choose to keep drinking, they've chosen this, you know, this right. um uh, this lifestyle of destruction. Really, it's really not true. And I have yet, yet to meet an alcoholic or an addict, um, whether it's, you know, in my meeting or whomever who has not suffered with anxiety and or depression. I suffered from horrible anxiety since I was 10 years old, panic attacks my entire life. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I never 
ever made the connection between that disorder because I never really looked at it as a disorder. I lived with it for a very long time. I lived with the panic attacks, suffered so long until I had such a horrible one in my late 20s. I, I didn't know what was going on. And I literally thought I was dying. You know, right, anyone who right. suffers from panic attacks, not just anxiety and just worry, but I mean a full-blown physical panic attack. That is what the feeling is like. You, you feel like you're dying. And yes. I, oh, yeah. You know, I ran to a doctor and, you know, uh, she calmed me down and explained what it was. And then, you know, she was like some behavioral therapy at first, which, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of was like, thought that was okay. But I really needed something for all of like my, my panic attacks really manifested itself in such a crazy physical way. I mean, you know, the yeah. heart palpitations and the sweating and just, I, yeah. it's a very, it's, it's, I can't explain what that feeling is. Oh, um, I've had them. Feeling of yeah. like you can't breathe, like you're literally dying. Yeah. And I needed something. I needed something to quell that immediately because I could not. I could not go on. So, um, it's it's interesting that the medication that I was given, which I don't want to get on this track of drugs, but mm-hmm. you know, I was given you know benzos, which worked great for an acute panic attack. You know, they yeah. They, yeah. they mitigated the anxiety. They worked, but you know, fast forward you know, those benzos starting, started to become, first of all, they're insanely addicting and you cannot take them with alcohol. And I was using them, even though it was a very low dosage, because I could not wake up in the morning without, you know, shaking like a leaf and Mm -hmm, I needed them mm -hmm. to stop shaking. So anyway, that, that's a whole different, um, no, but that's, that's exactly what, yeah, I had those as well. And it was actually the, the morning that I finally asked for help. I was having, I was in the throes of a panic attack of a full blown. But in that moment, I thought I had either overdosed on cocaine or I had was having a heart attack. Like that's right. what it felt yeah. like. Like yeah. I was like, okay, I'm about to die in this moment. Right. I know. You know, it's, and what am I going to do here? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Right. And I, somebody said to me, I remember early on after I got sober, they were like, well, the party had to end sometime. And I would just remember being like, I don't know what party you were at, but, you know, where I've been for the last 10 years has that been was, miserable. It was it not was, a party. <laughs> it was not about fun. I know. Trust me. It was I know. not about fun. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I never, like, getting back. I, um, and I just had, as we're talking now, which... I can't wait to to dig into this thought that I just had further. I, and I know it sounds might sound crazy. So I'm thinking, what, what do you mean she never made the fucking connection? Like, I, you know, because you hear so many stories. I drank, you know, I drank because I didn't fit in. I drank because I, you know, mm-hmm. I was abused. I drank, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the drunkalog stories are, you know. And I never felt like that. I never had you know, I drank because I didn't fit in. Cause I always felt like I fit in. I drank because, you know, I didn't feel part of, well, you know what? I did always feel part of, I drank because, you know, I was so pretty and didn't feel like, well, you know what? I was pretty. I drank because I couldn't, you know, all of those things mm-hmm. like that, that, that wasn't my story. And I've been, you know, really trying to figure out, you know, there's gotta be a reason. And, you know, they say genetics loads yeah. the gun. 
and environment pulls the trigger. So, mm-hmm. you know, what was the reason? There has to be a reason. I don't know. Maybe I didn't have a reason, but I I think, and I, I literally just had this revelation right now <laughs> that I, I mean, there, there were, there was stuff going on in my life in, you know, for once I went over that, when I crossed the line and I was drinking like an animal 24 hours a day, but that that switch had already been, um, had already been flipped. But I, I think that I drank because I didn't drink in high school, you know, because I, I, to deal with that extreme anxiety that would consume me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It it is absolutely a self-medication issue. Yeah. yeah. But um, getting back to the stigma. So, you know, I, you know, I know that you've been doing, you know, a lot of work, you know, to destigmatize addiction. And, you know, I just, you know, I just started this, so I'm new, but I really, really want to, you know, want to make it my mission because I think that if we could completely take away the stigma, you know, as we do any other illness, I think that so many people would be, um, you know, not only open to the idea yeah. that, you know, hey, I'm an alcoholic, but be open, you know, be open to getting help. Right, you know? right. And, and that, yeah, that's the thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, it really is a matter of explaining that this is something that is, you know, like any other disorder you might experience. It, it is a chemical thing. It is something that, you know, is addressed by the same way you address any other. We have to treat physical health and mental health as, you know, not two different things, but an as health overall in equal part. Exactly. And exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think, you know, this, you know, this, this idea might seem so obvious to, you know, so many people, you know, particularly addicts, but alcoholics, you know, but because we, you know, don't have the background, I mean, like the soci- socioeconomic background, et cetera, you know, or look like, and I don't mean like just physically look like, of course, mm-hmm. but, you know, look like, you know, what many think of, you know, that a drunk would look like, you know, right. we're often, you know, you're, you're, we're often misunderstood, you know, like you have a graduate degree, like you're oh, yeah. smart. You know, you're smart. You're a member Med- of the PTA. Yeah. You're on the board, you know, yeah. at your temple. You know, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're, a, you know, what do you mean you're an alcoholic? What's, you know, what's wrong with your life? Yeah. And it, right. it has nothing right. to do with that. No. You know, and alcoholism no. doesn't discriminate. And, Not at all. No. Um, you know, I, I was a drunk. I was a yeah. drunk. And alcohol consumed my thoughts. 24 hours a day from the minute I woke up. That's it. Until the moment I blacked out because at the end, I wasn't always, I, you know, I was not always, I, you know, it was the last couple of years, which is more than enough to be a blackout drinker. But um, I just obsessed about alcohol from the minute I woke up until I blacked out at night about when I was going to drink, where I was going to drink, where I was going to get it. And who who is I going to lie to today? Who was I going to manipulate today? I mean, yeah, you know. oh yeah, and because it, it's often described as a physical allergy combined with a mental obsession, and exactly. you know that's what 
you know, when, uh, when I explain it as like this thing owned me, it owned me, like, like you said, from the moment you open your eyes in the morning and, and you know, and it creeps up that way. It doesn't start out that way. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. You know, and you know, and no one, you know, no one knew, you know, I mean, my friends and I, you know, I, I've said this many times and we went out, we liked to drink, we mostly drank wine, you know, sometimes martinis and, you know, yeah, looking back, you know, maybe I was the one who always had that one extra, you know, glass of wine, you know, right, right. dinner, you know, looking back, yes, you know, I was, I was that one. Mm-hmm. You know, and we got in our cars and we drove home and, you know, we put our kids to bed, you know, and that was it. Um, yep. Yep. Oh, I, yeah. Just because I was able, you know, during the day to like, you know, put on my, you know, Lily Pulitzer dress and sweep my hair back into that, you know, perfect, you know, ponytail. Uh-huh. Yeah. No one knew, but I felt like I just you know, had failed everyone in my life when, you know, when they did know. And I, I really clung, and maybe you did too, um, to, you know, the idea that I really couldn't be an alcoholic, you know. Um, right, right. I, like so many other things in my life, you know, I could control it. But oh my gosh. This, you so know, true. I, what beast, have you not been able to control before? That's exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this beast, I could not control. Yeah. And what was it like, you know, as you saw that slipping away like that, it, because that I had a lot of confusion around that. Wait, what do you, I'm sorry. As, as you saw, like, as you started to accept that you couldn't control it. Oh, I know. Um, it's, it's terrifying. You know, it's, you know, you are, I mean, as they say, um, you know, you're, you know, you're powerless and it's, it's really scary. It's, it's really, really scary. And, you know, you have to, you know, you have to give it up. You know, I don't mean like, well, literally, you know, give it up. Right, right, right. You have to like, you know, you have to let go and surrender and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that. Yeah. And that is something that, you know, I think a lot of people grapple with the idea of powerlessness. And I think there's a lot of pushback on 12 step recovery. in particular, because you're, you're admitting powerlessness, but you're admitting powerlessness over alcohol, not over everything else. Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because you probably know who she is because you're in the, um, recovery women warrior world, um, uh-huh. and an author, but was it Holly Whitaker? Mm-hmm. Um, I read a piece that she wrote for the New York times. Yeah. Yeah. And it got it, you know, it got skewered by a lot of people, you know, about because she's not an AA girl and that's fine. You know, not not everyone is. AA happened to save my life and I same here. You know, I will continue to go to AA. I do not think I've learned a lot in the past few months and I don't think that AA is the be all end all. Um But anyway, but anyway, Holly in her piece, you know, in the New York Times said, you know, she hated the idea of powerlessness. What do you mean? I'm not. No, you're not powerless. You're not powerless. Yeah. You are powerless over being able to stop drinking. And that's it. 
Yeah. yeah. I'm, pa- I'm yeah. paraphrasing, of course. Yeah. Oh, you know, no, I no, no. I know, Holly. And I actually thought in that op-ed, I mean, I, I definitely do understand that there is, you come into recovery very um, vulnerable and kind of beaten down. And that can be a, that, that can be a dangerous position sometimes. Um, I thought actually that in the op-ed that Holly was, um, was good, quite good about acknowledging that, you know, this is a viable path for, you know, and a great path for the people for whom it works. It's not going to work for everybody. And here are other ways to do it if, you know, if that doesn't work for you. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that when someone is going to try 12 step or thinking about trying 12 step and they say, you know, I don't want to say I'm powerless. I said, you know, you're, you're saying you're powerless over alcohol. 12 step may still not be a fit for you, but you know, there is, um, I have to say it, that Holly has, um, I, I don't know if you've read her book, but she is, what she has brought forward is this feminist perspective yes. on it. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, it yeah. is very yeah. empowering, um, which is, which is, um, you know, sort of a shift for me, it was like, oh, wow, I hadn't, you know, having also been 12 step through my entire 16 years of recovery, like, it's like, oh, wow, you're, you know, thinking like, yeah, you're right. Like, I always kind of felt like getting sober was badass. But um, I then I felt I, she really pointed out the, um, the empowerment that we should take out of, you know, the fact that we choose to say, this is not what I want for my life. And I'm going to do what I need to do to not go down that road. Exactly. Yeah. yeah her, I mean, her book is called um, Quit Like a Woman, right, which I right, think was, exactly. was You know, it's funny. I was not, um, I, I don't know why. I just, you know, I like to read and, you know, I, since I've gotten sober, you know, I feel like I like to educate myself, you know, in any way that I can. And I, I, you know, and I am four years. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not that long. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have all the quitlet stuff. Yeah. You know, quit. yeah, yeah. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even, I mean, it was like a, it was like a term I never even heard of. And it was only over the past couple of months when I took, you know, when we have my, our mutual friend, you know, Martha, um, you know, introduced, you know, got me into Laura McCowan and then from her, you know, Holly Whitaker and Sarah and all these people. And you, I was like, where the hell have I been? How have I not, you know, you know, um, how have I not read all these books already? So like, you know, I have all of them piled up on, on my night table. I actually just ordered yours about five seconds before we went. <laughs> about before we started, uh, before we started this podcast. So I cannot, you know, I cannot yeah, wait yeah, to, yeah. Read, to read your book. Oh, no. I don't know. Okay. I feel like I've been living under a rock. Um, and since I've been doing all this reading, I just, I really feel like it's taken my recovery in, in a much different direction. And it's so funny that you use the term badass because people, I have, I, I, it's hard to explain Um, but since I have gotten sober and I've used, and I use this term a lot to describe, you know, my aura now and who I've become, Mm -hmm. you know, in my, you know, in my, to my core, I'm still, I'm still me, but I, you know, I, this, this badassness has crept into me. 
Yes. And, um, and I, and I like it. I like it. I think that, I think that my kids, you know, sometimes think it's a little weird and, you know, people who've known me a really long time. I mean, like you got a tattoo, you, you were like, (laughs) you were like Charlotte, you know, in, um, from, you know, sex in the city. Like you were that girl, you know, and there's a part of me that still is, but there's yeah. a part of me that sure, is sure. so not, you know. Yeah. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult to no, but it, to yeah. describe. And I feel, I do feel so empowered and really strong. And, you know, like really strong as a woman. Yes. Um, you are. You, you are. Know, since, since I've gotten sober. And, and that's I've been, the. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's the other thing about this idea of stigma and, you know, being seen as weak or defective or something like that. In fact, when you reach out and get help, like it is, um, you know, it's a very brave thing and it's a very um, powerful, strong thing to do to say, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of myself. And you can look back and go, wow, you know, I like that person more than I like the one who was hiding in the corner drinking, hoping nobody saw me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a feeling I have um, of, of a pride of, in my, you know, of being sober, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, um, 100%. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I own it. Proudly. Yeah. Yes. I think it's yep. really, and I, and I don't, I don't, not, not, there's people that don't, there really are people that don't. Mm-hmm. That's so personal. It's so it personal it to is. everyone, you know, but I, for me, it has certainly being able to speak up and being able to, you know, be proud of it has really helped my recovery. Uh, um, so much, so, so, so much. You know, and we do it in our own time. You know, I I was sober, you know, 11 years or something when my book came out. And, you know, up until then, I hadn't been like public about my recovery. You were sober for a long time before you started your podcast. Right. All right. You know, when it's, if it feels right at a time that feels right, then it's your choice. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, yeah. So I just want to ask you one more thing and then I want to talk about your book, you know, but, you know, unless I'm missing something about your story, you know, you, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to land in jail or have a really, really, you no. know, horrific bottom to, you know, realize that your life is unmanageable and would be much better without alcohol. Correct. I mean, that really wasn't, Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It was really for me. I mean, I hadn't, you know, I had still great job. I gotten a raise and bonus the month before I checked myself into detox. Um, I what you know, had a nice apartment in New York, friends, family, all that stuff. But I was like dead on the inside. I mean, I would, you know, get up in the morning and have to drink to get out of bed and just look in the mm-hmm. mirror and be like, I hate you you know? And to me, that's what the bottom looked like. It wasn't about material things or my circumstances. It was about, you know, who I was as a person and, and the, the, um, self-loathing and self-hatred I had. 
I mean, that was, that was my bottom really was just, um, you know, there were plenty of mornings. Oh, there were so many times that I had woke up in the morning and wished I hadn't, you know, just, um, uh, and, and, um, you know, I, I had a paint, I didn't have to, but the way I was choosing to deal with it at that time was to like get up, take a shower, paint my face up and go out into the world. Like everything was fine and you live a double life and it's absolutely miserable. And I couldn't take, you know, I really bottomed out at when I couldn't do that anymore. And didn't your, maybe I misunderstood you when we were talking, didn't your firm, didn't they do something like great for you? Well, what happened was after I got, um, well, I went to detox one morning when I really thought I, I had overdosed or was having a heart attack, like I said, which I now know was a panic attack. Um, and when I went, I went only for um, five days. I went for the detox. I refused to go to like a long-term, I, I had to have a medical detox for um, because I was so badly addicted physically. and at the end of that five days, they wanted me to go to the hospital, wanted me to go to a longer term recovery program. And I refused because I was like, no, because I was out of work. You know, I had emailed my firm the day I went into the hospital and had said that I had had a medical emergency over the weekend. I would be out of touch. I was fine, but I was going to be in the hospital. So they wouldn't see me that week. Please don't worry about me. I'll see you next Monday. And I went right back to work. And I went to like an outpatient intensive program um, a couple nights a week. But so I didn't tell them anything because I was so ashamed and afraid and, you know, all the stigma stuff I talked about. But then after about 10 months sober, I went to, I, I was able, surprise, surprise, I might have been high functioning at the job I had when I was using. But once I got sober, I was able to take a more you know, a bigger job, um, because I was actually present. So like, I, I think the whole idea of being high functioning is a myth. I think you're high functioning until the day you're not, you know, the day you you get a DUI or the day you miss a deadline. But, um, but I, I was then able to take sort of a next level job. So I had, I left the firm that I was at and I was always at great firms. It was not about any of the places I was at at all. And I, um, I, went to another firm sober and they didn't know, you know, I didn't talk about it when I interviewed. It was not, you know, why would I? Um, And I didn't really share it widely because it's my personal thing, you know, and nobody else is entitled to your story. So I was writing the book in the mornings before I would go to work at this new job. And, um, you know, it started out as just a cathartic kind of thing and a way to explain to my family and friends who didn't understand what happened, what happened. Um, and then it became something where it was like, wow, this could maybe be a book and maybe help somebody else, which is why I kept going with it. And then I had been at my firm um, 10 years when I got my book deal. And I had been... Um, promoted from the, I went in as the um, director of business development and I had been right around the time I got the book deal, I'd been promoted to deputy executive director of the firm with a seat on the management committee. And, you know, shortly after that promotion was when I had to tell them, oh, guess what? Um, (laughs) You know, I write, well, here's what it's about. And it's going to be a book coming out. 
and they were just incredible. They were so wonderful, so supportive. Like, you know, they let me do what I, um, what I needed to do in terms of, or what I wanted to do in terms of going out and speaking and, um, and, you know, being able to try and help the next person. And so they, they really were above and beyond. I mean, I only left the firm at the end of this past August and, or last August, 2019, um, to start out on my own and do what I'm doing now in terms of speaking and consulting with law firms and doing professional recovery coaching. Um, and they just couldn't have been more, mm. more incredible. So, okay. yeah, I mean, but they knew me, they had known me for 10 years when they heard my story. Right. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So then came your book. Yes. Which is the title is just so awesome. And as I, I told you, um, when I was thinking of titles for my podcast, that was, that was high up on the list. And uh -huh. I, I discovered that it was the title of a book and I couldn't use it. <laughs> yeah. so, Sorry about that. So, well, great minds, right? Um, girl walks out of a bar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what, what can we say about that? Oh, about the book? Yeah. Um, you know, it really is the memoir, my descent into and then recovery from this idea of quote unquote high functioning alcoholism and addiction in the world of uh, New York City corporate law, big law. Um, and, uh, you know, it tracks, it tells my story from, you know, sort of start, I start, the book starts on the day that I uh, ended up checking myself in to detox, but then I go back and sort of retrace what, you know, how I got there and then what happened, what happened afterwards. So, you know, it was just like when I started, um, when I first got sober, I started reading because I was always a huge reader. So I started reading every memoir I could find about, you know, recovery and these stories. And I read, you know, Drinking a Love Story, which was Carolyn Knapp's classic. I read, you know, all these, anything that came out, I read it. And um, I loved, oh, one of the very first ones I read was Augustine Burroughs' Dry, which is just... Uh, to me still, I was like, oh, there's, you know, he was able to find humor, you know, in um, what happened, dark humor, but, you know, the book was, um, it made me realize like, oh, it, it doesn't all have to be kind of this dark, dreary telling of anything. And, you know, but I did not find on the bookshelf a story like my own of, you know, someone who, a woman who was going up the corporate ladder and, um, you know, not losing everything, not having all these destroyed things and still ending up at this very bottom. And, um, that was why I wanted, you know, I felt like I knew all those, you know, nights that I was sitting in my living room, like pounding and being miserable and thinking I'm so alone. I'm so isolated. The, the mm -hmm. isolation, the isolation oh. that I self-imposed and also, the isolated feeling of living in addiction was just, um, you know, pretty overwhelming. And I was like, I know I'm not the only one out there. I know somebody else is sitting in their living room tonight no, feeling the exactly, way I felt. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I really wanted to put it out there so that, you know, the, the person who was like me out there still in that would know they weren't alone and could right. see that there was, that there was hope. 
so 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 awesome isn't there um I th- like a crazy statistic about in your first you know few years of um people who are lawyers in their first few years how mm-hmm. many you know yeah the lawyers uh the lawyer numbers are really bad so um twenty sixteen there was a big study that came out from the American Bar Association and Hazel and Betty Ford that found that um uh it studied broadly in in you know active practicing lawyers uh thirteen thousand of them responded and uh it found that 21% had some form of alcohol use disorder, which can mean a number of things, but is basically problem drinking. Right, right. So 21%, which is more than double, wow. you know, what's generally thought the 9% in the general population. Also, like hugely elevated um, levels of depression, mm. anxiety, suicidal thoughts, all, you know, really just just bad numbers. And um, the study found that, in fact, the highest numbers were among lawyers in their first 10 years of practice. So that was kind of, and that number was about, was basically a third had, had a, you know, scored on the alcohol use disorder um, uh, spectrum. And so, uh, you know, it, it was really a surprise, not just in the numbers, but in the fact that it was the younger lawyers who were struggling the most because, you know, um, alcoholism is and addiction are progressive diseases. They get worse over time. So you would have expected to see the higher numbers in the later years, but that's not what happened. And yes, I think part of it is that, you know, they're still, they're right out of a campus environment. They come into very stressful jobs that turn them upside down. They've got a ton of debt, all of these things, you know, they haven't yet aged out of the party scene, like all of those are factors. But I also think, you know, the thing that's very worrisome to me about that number is that like, if you took, like, if I had filled out that survey when I was practicing, I practiced for, for about five or six years, um, I would have scored on that alcohol, you know, use disorder spectrum. But then if you came back and surveyed me for the next 10 years, I had switched out of practicing and I was in an administrative role. I was still doing very well and everything was great. I had a great job and this and that. But, you know, big reason why I stopped practicing was because it became incompatible with my drinking. So I actually dropped out of the profession. So part of me worries that that number starts going down as you get older because people are not making it to those later years of practice. Yep. Yep. That's so So, true. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Um, So are you going to write another book? Uh, it's funny. I just started working on one now. I hadn't been, but I'm going to write one. Um, I'm just because now with, you know, having a lot more time with everything that's going on in the right. world and um, wanting to, you know, knowing how I love writing and, you know, it's a really good thing for my mental health to be writing. So um, I'm playing with fiction for the first time. <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? Okay. You know, okay. I never expected Girl Walks Out of a Bar to be published and I wrote it that way. And that's what I'm doing now. I have no expectation that, okay. that what I'm playing with now would ever be published, yeah. but I just love writing. So I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to, um, I can't wait to read the book. I cannot wait to read the book. Oh, thanks. And, I hope you like um, it. Um, 
Thank you so, so much. Please continue to do, continue to do all the wonderful, wonderful work you're doing. Oh, thank you. And you too. This is um, a great thing you're doing. Thank you. I've been, I've been really, I've been really lucky, really lucky. And, um, you know, if I always say, you know, if I could help one person, you know, take their, take their last drink today, then I will be happy. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah. 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 So thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leslie. It's been great talking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. As long as I am in recovery and have a voice, I will always use it to release the stigma of alcoholism. I think it is so, so crucial. Hang in there, everyone. I am always cheering for you.